0: 2021, a year that will live in infamy, I think, to quote a famous man. There's, I, I look at the year as uh, a year of great exasperation, and yet a year also of great exhilaration and excitement. Uh, there, there is so much to be frustrated about, so much to be exasperated about, and what we're seeing happening around us, not only in our country, but around the world. We have, we have lost so much. We have lost health. We've lost wealth. We've lost friends and family, some of you. And we get this growing sense that we're losing our freedom, right? It seems that the world is preparing itself for a one world ruler to rise up and fill all the gaps in this leadership, leaderless world. But on the other side of the exasperation is this excitement. Excitement that uh, as we look around us and see the signs of the times, we realize that we are living in the last days. And God is about to do something amazing on this earth. And if, if you are a believer in biblical prophecy, you look at the, the signs of the times around us and you realize we might be the last generation before the Lord snatches his church from off of this earth. And that should excite us, right? So this is not a time to doubt God's sovereign control over all things, thinking that maybe he's, maybe he's not aware of how bad things are getting down here. <laughs> no, nor is it a time for us to wish for everything to return to normal. Because do you think it's going to? Do you think it should? I don't think it should, because I think the church has gained a whole lot in, uh, in struggling through what we have just been through and perhaps even worse things to come. So it's time for the church, I believe, to prepare for its deliverance. That is to go home, to be with Jesus. And until then, to live out our faith and live out our love for a lost world that really desperately needs to see Jesus alive in us. A national worship leader found himself at that same edge of despair uh, some time ago. His name is Asaph. He lived 3,000 years ago, in case you're wondering. And he wrote songs. He, he led worship uh, he, he led people in the praise of God and yet he was struggling. And Psalm 73, if you'd open your Bibles to it today, is an interesting psalm that deals with his struggle in the first half of the psalm and then it comes to a midpoint and then the rest of the psalm opens up into a very positive, wonderful uh, experience that teaches us this truth, that trusting God's sovereignty compels worship and dispels doubt. So when I, I pursue worship, rather than worrying about the inequities of this life, I find my peace with God and I connect with him on a very intimate basis. So he begins with the declaration of God's goodness and that's a good place to start when you're looking around us, right? Truly, God is good to Israel to those who are pure or mature in heart. So instantly we see that his theology is correct. Asaph, as he observes the world around him, as he remembers the teaching of the Torah and the instructions that he has received in the temple, and by his own life experience, he knows that God is good to his people, that he always cares for them. He meets their needs. He writes poetry about God. He leads music about God and his goodness to us. But he's facing a serious problem, and that is the danger of doubt. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. So his correct theology here doesn't match up with what he's seeing around him in the world that he's living in. Why does God seem to reward those Who are so far against him and opposed to everything I stand for as a Christian, and he doesn't bless me like them materially. They're better off than me. So his faith is on this slippery slope of false comparisons with the success of others. And God's sovereignty is now in question here. Have you ever been on that slippery slope of doubting God's sovereignty? Years ago, I was taking a, uh, a trip with a bunch of guys from Rome Church, where I pastored, up Skyline Trail towards Mount Baker. How many of you have been on Skyline Trail? Yeah, I figured there'd be a lot of people here. Uh, it's a, it's a, like a two-mile hike up to this beautiful ridge, and when you get on top of this ridge, there's a 360-degree view of the Cascades and on a clear day, even the, the coastal range. Well, one of the guys... In our church named Rocky has a team of mules and uh, he, he, he does uh, packing for the DNR to haul stuff up into into the wilderness areas and uh, he likes to give them exercise so we brought him along and when we got to the top he said Scott why don't you get up on one of my mules take a ride it was saddled and I've ridden his mule before so uh, I was happy to get off my feet but it wasn't long before as we were heading south towards Mount Baker that the trail suddenly becomes very narrow And it's on this steep, rocky slope. And on the one side, there's this steep precipice. And I had to put my trust that that mule knew exactly where to place his next foot, hoof, uh, so as to uh, make it across that safely. Because if the mule slipped and fell, goodbye, Pastor Scott. And I had to rest in the comfort of knowing that that mule had probably traversed hundreds and hundreds of miles on trails just like that. And Rocky had assured me it was gonna be fine. As a matter of fact, he testified that the mule he was riding, uh, he had even fallen off it over a cliff and hung on to the reins of the mule and that mule pulled him back up. The Christian life can sometimes feel like you're riding on an unfamiliar beast on a knife-edge trail right next to a precipice. You ever feel that way? Is that a bad thing? It's actually a very good thing, if you are fully confident in the skill and experience of he who carries you. The better you know Jesus, the more confident your faith in God's sovereignty and his care for you. See, doubt blinds us from seeing The trail ahead, but Jesus knows it far better than we do, doesn't he? And then he says, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So here's why his faith is slipping. He envied those who were proud of their riches And even while he's envying them, he's admitting that they're wicked people. Now, we know that not all rich people are wicked, but the ones that he was observing were. Their hearts were far from God. And uh, why would he do that? Well, see, that's the natural result of taking our eyes off of of, of God's provision for us and looking and comparing ourselves with the wealth of others. It's an unhealthy thing. Jesus said that riches are deceitful in Matthew 13:22. That's because they can never ever deliver what they seem to promise. Earthly wealth can never compare to our riches in Jesus. Paul even wrote of the unsearchable riches of Christ in Ephesians 3:10. And in Ephesians 1:7, uh, he says, "In him we have the redemption through the blood the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the what? The riches of God's grace, which he sprinkled upon us. Oh, no, that's a different word. Lavished, lavished, dumped full bore upon us. You and I who know Jesus have been lavished with his grace and his, the riches of his grace. What a beautiful, beautiful verse. The wealth of all the billionaires in the world cannot hold a candle to what we have in Jesus Christ. Proverbs 11.4 Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath. The billionaires cannot pay their way out of hell. But the righteous righteousness delivers us from death. What a neat promise. So where should our faith be, my friends? But Asaph here is gazing in the wrong direction. And it's distorting his perspective, and that's what riches do. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. (laughs) They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. So is Asaph living in some kind of a false reality here? I think he is, because he thinks the arrogant rich Enjoy a long, prosperous life with no problems whatsoever. And even die peacefully. That's so wrong. Well, it's true they can afford a lot more comfortable things than we, than we can. They can afford the best medical care, the best lawyers when they need them, and they often need them. But the, they die in Emptiness. The richest man in the world in Asaph's time gives us a different perspective than what he's talking about here. Solomon in in Ecclesiastes 2.21 says, for a person may labor with wisdom and knowledge and skill, work hard all their life, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. Oh, that's so frustrating. He says, this too is meaningless and a great misfortune. Great misfortune. So all his wealth is left to someone else who never worked for it and will not appreciate it. What's the old saying? He who dies with the most toys still dies. <laughs> That's right. He doesn't win. Now, most of us don't live close enough to the arrogant rich to know how troubled their lives are. But those that do live close and observe their lives know that they are living empty lives. They die. Uh, they die. <laughs> Of, of alcoholism, they die of drug abuse, they have suicide, and some even lose all their wealth and die in poverty. They're not happy, and as they approach death's door there is not peace, there is fear. In contrast, I think of my godly father. My younger brother had the privilege of being at my father's bedside uh, as he was dying. And Dad was laying there, he says, and suddenly Dad just shot up in bed, wide-eyed, and was staring at the corner of the room. And then he lifted his arm and pointed to the corner of the room. And then he just laid back down peacefully and went home to be with Jesus. I wonder what he saw. Maybe a glimpse of the home that was awaiting for him? A glimpse of Jesus? I don't know. After verse one here, who is missing from Asaph's observations so far? God is missing, and why is that? Because he wasn't thinking about God, he was only thinking about what the rich have and he doesn't, which leads us to this conclusion that analyzing life without God's viewpoint will always distort reality. Jesus warned us that this broad path that appears to be safe Is the way to hell it's the narrow path that leads to life therefore pride is their necklace violence covers them as a garment they wear their pride as if it was some kind of a a priceless jewelry they they are violent people they wear their violence (laughs) as if it was some new suit of clothes they're proud of and it's interesting this word in hebrew is hamas oppression Social injustice. So as society plunges more and more into incivility, the powerful see themselves as above the law while punishing those who try to keep the law and defunding those who are trying to enforce the law. How much more distorted can you get? Pride invites new levels of evil to flourish as they see themselves as above the law uh, and celebrate their power. You would think that Asaph was reporting from Washington, D.C. in 2021. (laughs) Verse 7. Their eyes swell out through fatness. What an interesting Hebrew idiom. (laughs) Their hearts overflow with follies. Sin comes naturally to the wicked, and the heart becomes even more calloused and foolish the further down into sin it it goes. We learned from Romans 1.30 this summer when... uh, pastor Jeremy was teaching that uh, they invent ways of doing evil and although they deserve death they not only continue to do these very things but also approve of those who practice them Isaiah also had some words of warning to such people woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness Who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight, who acquit the guilty for a bribe but deny justice to the innocent. They appear unstoppable today even as they did in Asaph's day, but their day is coming. They scoff and speak with malice loftily, they threaten oppression, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. And as Satan continues to embolden them, they lift their tiny fists and their squeaky voices up to heaven and say, God, you move aside. We're in charge down here. We're God. Remember what Pharaoh said to Moses when uh, Moses kept telling him, God says to let my people go. And Moses said, "Hmm, I don't know the Lord. Why, sh- why should I let the people of Israel go? I don't know him. Well, he didn't, it's true, but he was about to. And until then, Pharaoh thought that he was God's representative on earth, and he strutted about as if he was God and owned everything. That's what this verse is saying. And it kind of reminds me of the Pharisees in uh, Jesus' day. They were kind of like the Pharaohs of Jesus' day, they played God. Even while standing in the presence of God, the Son of God, and condemning his righteous acts as sin. Again, how much more distorted can you get? They were the judges of what was right, and so they were able to oppress and condemn everyone who disagreed with them. Does that sound familiar? Therefore, his people, the wicked's friends, that is, turned back to them and find no fault in them in the things that they do. Now this verse is is very complex to translate and probably every one of your different translations translates it differently, but this this is the summary that I think he's saying here that evil attracts more evil. More envious people want to be a part of the action to get in on the prophets because they see there's no accountability. And millions of mindless sheep Are headed down that death parade and the devil is very happy to promote those celebrities who are so enamored with themselves believing that they are invincible because they say how can God know how can God know (coughs) is there knowledge in the Most High behold these are the wicked always at ease and they increase in riches they think If there is a God, he doesn't know and he doesn't care what we do. And the fact that they're always getting away with it and even being enriched by it is so frustrating to Asaph that he's saying, God, I know you exist, but you are not acting according to my expectations. Which leads me to this interesting truth I found the other day. It's hard to hear God's voice when we have already decided what we want to hear. When we envy the godless and their wealth rather than trusting in God's sovereignty that's a form of idolatry i think and i think jesus calls that sin and we are ignoring the flashing red lights on the on the dashboard of our souls that are warning us of the despair of false expectations all in vain have i kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence for all the day long i've been stricken down and and rebuked every morning. So I think at this point, Asaph has reached the dungeon of his disquieted soul. Why attempt to live a godly, righteous life when all it gets me is pain and suffering and in trouble? You ever feel that way? Is it worth trusting God and avoiding all the wonderful things that the world seems to be enjoying? Well, take heart, my friends, because God only disciplines his children. And he always does so in love. And he says, don't take it lightly, my son. Don't take, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone that he accepts as sons. I believe that God is always in the process of refining our faith purifying us, deepening our trust in him rather than in the things of this world. You know why? Because I think he's preparing us for heaven, to live in his presence forever. I think of Job. He didn't curse God when God allowed Satan to take everything from him, his health, his wealth, his family. His wife even said, curse God and die. Well, he didn't. I think God was preparing Job to be able to worship him out of a heart that understands the sovereignty of God and then to be a testimony to those who didn't. I think of Joseph, this young man, he still trusted in God even though he was unjustly put in an Egyptian prison for years and years having been accused of a horrible sin that he was not guilty of in Potiphar's house and yet, he stayed the course. He did what God called him to do. And God was conditioning him to do what? To rule Egypt and to save his people. Moses, uh, he had to have <coughs> false expectations when time and time again, he had to go back to Pharaoh and say, the Lord says, let my people go. And Pharaoh, in response, just made their work harder. And then he had to go face the uh, Israelite leaders out there who scoffed at him and said, get out of here. You're making it tougher for us, not better. And Moses goes back to God and says, what are you doing, God? And and God says, just wait, watch my next move. God was preparing Moses to lead the Israelites to freedom. So Asaph here in his dungeon of despair, realizes where his false expectations are taking his head and his heart and God was preparing him to worship from his heart If I had said I will speak thus I would have betrayed the generation of your children But when I thought how to understand this it seemed to me a wearisome task so he realizes that had he spoken out loud his frustrations with God that he could have actually undermined the faith of other people, including his children and his grandchildren. And that thought just depressed him all the more. So let's push the pause button here <clears throat> and ask ourselves: when you do the thoughts that you tweet online or whatever social media you use share, uh, d- undermine trust in God? Or do they bolster it? Do they build it up? Hopefully you've got Christian friends that are always bolstering your faith. Years ago, I I did the graveside service for a man that I never met, but his wife began coming to our church. And she was a sweet old grandma that uh, we discovered had a very, very hard, painful life. And uh, in her pursuit of trying to find God, she became a Satanist. And she got deep into Satanism, worshiping him, until one day she caught fire. And she realized she was worshiping the wrong God. And God miraculously saved her. And she became such a dynamic testimony for for God's grace. Uh, She's raising her grandchildren with great love and and compassion. We were even seeing her her son, who was not walking with God, now become uh, a real concern uh, for even the, the the homeless around him, and uh, has seen one come to Christ as a result of her testimony to him. So now she has such a passion to reach her old Bellingham High School classmates that she gathers them together once a week for breakfast, and and uh, she just loves them. She is able. She watches hours and hours of good Bible teaching. Online. And then she summarizes it into a few wonderful sentences that just encapsulate the, the, the grace of God and the gospel of God so clearly. And she posts that online to all our friends. And she, she does wonderful things for her neighbors who are just really resistant. <clears throat> she, to me, is a wonderful example of refusing to allow the pains and suffering and scars and losses to be weapons to weaken or destroy faith in God. Instead, she uses those things to build up and display the grace of God so beautifully. What a testimony she is to me. See, we cannot, whoops, we cannot fully understand the depth and the breadth of God's dominion and his his sovereignty over all that's going on. And I have to ask me and I ask you, are we in charge of God's calendar? His timing on how he does things? His, his courtroom, the decisions that he makes? His cash flow, how he provides for us? Are we in charge of his council chamber, the decisions that he makes? Well, thankfully not. And in his despair, <coughs> excuse me, Asaph <coughs> finally unlocks how he broke through this sinful downward spiral of doubt and that is through the deliverance of worship. Verse 17, he says, I was troubled and in despair until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned therein. So here's the pivotal verse, beginning with a pivotal word that's properly placed at the, thank you so much, thankfully placed as the first word in the sentence for emphasis, And it separates all the preceding dark malaise of what what Asaph has been struggling with from the truth and the light that he has come to understand through worship. Worship was Asaph's way back to wholeness, back to health, spiritual health. Because God replaced his human perspective with a divine perspective. When we come into that special holy place of, of solitude with God, that becomes our sanctuary. That becomes our personal connection with God where, where we, can, we can let go of everything around us and just come in and focus on God, listen to him speak to us through his word, speak his word back to him in praise and glory, and then lift up others in, in prayer to him. Uh, that can happen any place. Our living room becomes a sanctuary for Rachel and I as we sit there and listen to good Bible teaching and then the beautiful praise music that's available online these days. Oh, your car can be a sanctuary. As you're driving to work, why not? Uh, A closet at your house, a high mountain trail where you can get out and enjoy the beauty and majesty of God's creation. There's a place uh, on our property where I cleared out all the underbrush among all these beautiful cedar trees, and Wes and I put up this, uh, this two-person swing that was the last project that my father and I worked on before he passed away. And on nice days, <clears throat> like the one that's shown here, I like to go out there and just, just swing and think of God's goodness to us, to me, so undeserved, and uh, lift up my voice in thanksgiving, thanking him for this church, that loves the Lord, that, where we get such good Bible teaching every Sunday from a pastor that just loves the Lord and his family. And I lift up whoever else God brings to mind. It's my, my personal sanctuary. Our worship starts in the privacy of our own hearts, according to 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, because it says that the Holy Spirit lives in us and that makes us God's temple. That's where communion with God is rooted. And from there, it grows into this corporate worship experience that we're having here every Sunday, thank God, where Jesse leads us in beautiful worship songs and, and we're able to lift our voices together to worship the one and true living God, to hear the word of God expounded and we enjoy it together to come to that point of conviction and change as Jesse prayed this morning that would happen to us. It's a beautiful thing, praying together, having communion together, sharing testimonies like last week. What a blessing that was to my soul. That was worship, my friends, letting other people see how good God is in spite of what's going on around us. See, God designed us for this privilege that we're experiencing here right here this morning that so many people in the world would long to have and must not be neglected. So wherever it happens, worship becomes a refuge for the soul. And the principle here is that the more we commune with Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the more we will understand and trust his sovereignty. So it's while worshiping that Asaph understood how blessed he was in comparison to those other people that he's been envying. And he comes to realize the destiny of the wicked. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you arouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. So as he's worshiping God, the fog of doubt seems to rise. and He's able to get a clearer view of what, Of where the wicked evil people no matter how rich or poor they are are headed and he realizes that they stand on a slippery slope of a volcanic cauldron of judgment that they can never escape from that's sad it's like a dream that's gone upon awakening so too the godless will disappear from us and his worship then leads to this very deep confession of soul. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. So that bitterness of soul produced by envy and doubt was like a sword piercing his soul, which is what Hebrews 4.12 tells us. That the word of God is like a sword that that separates between truth and error down deep inside to help us sort through what's what's right and what's wrong. So in his deep conviction here, he had to admit that he acted like a senseless, uh, dumb animal, beast before God when he was doubting God's sovereignty, uh, a beast that has no consciousness of God. And Asaph finally declares the dependability of God's justice in this last section here. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. In other words, you rescued me from this zoo (laughs) that I was in. You didn't reject me. You pulled me out. You guide me with your counsel. God, you are my constant counselor. You lead me in the paths of righteousness, back to safety of your sovereignty, choosing to rescue me rather than reject me and here's the best part this last line and afterward you will receive me to glory after what after what after struggling with faith in God's priorities for me after seeing wicked people thrive and righteous people abused denied justice after almost forsaking faith in god's sovereignty and his sovereign plan for me in the world i get to anticipate something so wonderful that it's beyond any imagination as the apostle paul said i get to escape from this dying world god will receive us into glory and where is that (laughs) into his presence for how long forever and ever i hope you're looking forward to that That, my friends, is called deliverance. We were listening to J.D. Farag the other day, and he was teaching on Israel's escape from Egypt, and he made this interesting observation that it seems that just before God delivers his people into the safety and freedom that he's promised them, he lets them go through a time of suffering. And God's purpose in doing that is, is not just to refine our gold, not just to purify us, but it's to help us to long for heaven and escape the slaveries of this earth. And I agree with him. Why would we want to stay here anyway when heaven awaits us and our union with the the Savior who saved us, our reunion with friends and family who have gone on before. See, that's what verse 25 seems to be screaming out to our, our, our souls, our fainting hearts, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Wow. You see, earth holds nothing for us. Yet, sometimes I must admit that I act as if I'm never leaving. And I want to protect and hang on to everything I've worked hard for. And put my roots down deep here. And worship is that which brings me back to the reality of anticipating my heavenly home. Worship helps me to see that I only need Jesus. Worship opens my understanding of the dimensions of God's grace and his plan of redemption. It diminishes my concern about my earthly holdings. And I just pray that verse 25 will become indeed the passion of my soul and the passion of your soul as we get our priorities correct, get an eternal perspective on why we are here, why he hasn't taken us off this earth as soon as we, we come to know the Lord as our Savior. And the more this world system readies for the rise of Antichrist, the closer Jesus' return is. And First John 3.3 tells us that he who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure my flesh and my heart may fail oh that's so true we'll stumble and fall we'll grow weak our frail humanity and everything in this world is bent on on expediting our physical demise we cannot trust in our flesh my friends to fix the problem of sin because it's a spiritual battle we're in and we must rely upon the Holy Spirit and his power to not just get us through somehow, but to triumph over sin in our own lives and to encourage that in other people's lives as well. <clears throat> Which is what the rest of this verse promises. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See, he is my share in eternity, He's my inheritance. And that is enough. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. So those who never knew God will be dealt with in God's time and in his way. And the heathen rich may bellow from their high towers of power, but someday they will rush to the mountains and cry for them to fall on them and hide them. From who? From the face of him who sits on the throne what a sad destiny so instead of comparing our toys let's compare our destinies here and realize that the earth this earth is the only heaven that these people will ever experience and how empty is that so let's not fear them let's pray for them I would like for our response to actually come right from verse 28 the last verse here which actually summarized some good action points for us but as for me it's good to be near God I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your good works are you feeling insecure in this world I sure am and that's a good thing so what do we do well we, we Find our security in Christ alone, in Christ alone. Stay close to him, and you will avoid that slippery slope of doubting God's sovereign care in your life. What does it look like to be near God? Well, let me ask the same question in a different way. What does worship look like? And I think this leads us to some action points here of creating that space, that sanctuary, where you and Jesus Meet together where you listen to him and he listens to you stay connected to the church wherever you go worship should lead us to a confession of sin to realize our sinful condition before God should lead us to increase our our trust in his timing in his provision and in his perfect justice I believe that the crises of uh, this past year are one of the best things that could have happened to the church because it helped I believe it helped believers especially me rearrange my priorities and where I am putting my security and it's not in this world rearranging from trusting man to restore civility and peace in America to trusting the Prince of Peace who is yet to come the church is God's plan to reach the world to save the world not the government So let's allow God to purify our allegiance to his kingdom. Uh, We can expect the prophetic timetable to begin to unveil more and more of the dark days that the book of Revelation says are coming and uh, it's not far off. Secondly, he says, I have made the Lord God my refuge. So we need to acknowledge, first of all, Jesus Christ as our savior, If he is not your savior, you have no hope, and only the the cauldron of hell awaits. So put your faith and trust in him. He's your only security in this world, our only harness, just like Rocky's mule keeping me safe across that precipice. Uh, Don't dismount this faith journey, even if the trail gets really narrow and gets scary. Remember, the narrow path is the safe one that leads to life. And secondarily here let's let our theology determine our response to the inequities of life what we know to be true about God and as the world becomes increasingly hostile to the church run to Jesus to regain his perspective see that's not retreating that's not negative run to Jesus he's that's what he wants you to do because our human perspective really stinks my friends and uh, we need to yield to God's perspective And then third and finally here, that I may tell of all your works. So as we live in anticipation of Jesus' soon return, let's get the good news out. Let's allow the love of Jesus Christ flowing through us to win that world that he died to save. Knowing God's sovereignty compels worship and dispels doubt. When I pursue worship, rather than worrying about the inequities of life, that's when I will find peace with God and that's when I will fulfill my purpose in being on this earth. I'd like to close with a few verses of my new favorite song that I hear on the radio. It's a song by Chris Tomlin. And it's a series of questions with brief answers. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. Do you wish that you could see it all made new? We do. Is all creation groaning? It is. Is there a new creation coming? It is. Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? It is. Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah who conquered the grave, he is David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is he worthy of this? He is. Let's pray. our father god we just want to thank you so much that you sent your son jesus to be the only possible route of salvation of uh, being forgiven our sins and being able to spend eternity with you in heaven thank you lord jesus for being worthy to open that scroll the title deed of this earth and claiming us as your children and promising us an eternity with you that we don't deserve, but only comes by faith in in you. So Lord, help us to have the bright perspective on our present life. And as we look around us, Lord, and see a world deteriorating as it plunges into sin, help us to remember, Lord, the end. Not to envy, but to trust in your sovereign care. Not to hate those who hate you, but to love and pray for them as best that we are able to in the weakness of our souls. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for Asaph who went through this struggle, the same struggle that we have sometimes and comes to this conclusion that as we worship and know you, we will be set free. In Jesus' name, amen.